We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. Los Angeles listeners, what is up? On April 23rd, I will be joining my longtime writing partner and buddy, Daniel Holzman. We are hosting a live conversation at the Los Angeles Public Library's Mark Tapper Auditorium. The theme, What Cookbooks Won't Tell You, 10 Burning Questions in Food. Make sure to RSVP. I'm going to link to in the show notes. April 23rd, me, Daniel Holzman, questions you. I will see you there. I was actually with my little cousins over Thanksgiving, and we were all drawing with colored pencils. I was like, I'm going to draw a cheese plate. So I drew a cheese plate, and I realized that the sections of the cheese plate kind of represent almost a paint-by-numbers map. Um, So I merged those together and created Cheese by Numbers. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. I'm a big fan of Marissa Mullen, and I really was excited to have her in the studio to talk about her career working in the music industry, but mostly to talk about cheese. She's the author of two books revolving around modern entertaining and the art of the cheese plate. Her latest, That Cheese Plate Wants to Party, is a sharp and highly enjoyable guide to buying cheese for all sorts of occasions, including a solo evening at home. Also on the show, I catch up with Daisy Aliato, the co-founder of the great Web3 media company Dirt. I find out about how food lives and breathes on the internet and dive into Web3's influence on the restaurant industry. I hope you enjoy this episode. Marissa Mullen, welcome to Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's really cool to finally meet you. I feel like I've known you and your work for before the pandemic even. Yeah, and it's nuts to be able to do things in person now. Like my first book came out in the middle of COVID. So being face to face with you is something very new for me. So love this. It's I love it too. Okay, so two books. That Cheese Plate Wants to Party is your new one. That Cheese Plate Will Change Your Life. We'll get into why it changes your life because I agree. Okay, what's the difference? So when somebody has already picked up, many people picked up your first one, what's this new one all about? Yeah, so That Cheese Plate Wants to Party is kind of the smarter, older sister to That Cheese Plate Will Change Your Life. Um, There's just a lot more elements to it. The whole idea is that a party isn't just a physical act, it's a mindset. So if you're in the mood to celebrate life, anything can be a party, but surrounding the cheese plate, of course. So my whole idea with parties, you know, whenever I throw a gathering, people are always gravitating towards the food first. So why not make that the focal point for your whole party? And with a cheese plate, there's so much customization with color, with flavor, textures. So I like to do is plan my cheese plate first and then plan the party around it. So for example, if the plate has reds and oranges and yellows, why not do a floral arrangement that matches that plate? And then maybe you can do your tablescape, kind of bring it all together to match the plate itself. And then my favorite part about the book is that each cheese plate has a musical playlist associated to it so that it kind of puts you in this whole sensory experience because I think the elements on a cheese plate really do ignite all the senses. So it's it's just a little deeper look into how cheese plates can bring joy and self-care, but through, you know, gatherings with people. I love that that attitude. I, I but I totally think that making a cheese plate for yourself is self-care. I, I I think it's extremely real when you take the time to shop and then all the slicing and 
all of it put together on a plate is you're you're giving yourself something that maybe you didn't have like you know an hour before. Yeah, for sure, and it takes you off the screens, which yeah. I love in this day and age. You know, like we need to do things with our hands. We need to stop scrolling, and I think by making a cheese plate, you know. Again, it's like you're cutting your cucumbers, you're cutting your cheese, you're folding your meat, you're arranging your plates. Like I, I got into cheese plating as a verb. Um, of course, you own that verb. <laughs> yes, because um, I used to work in the music business and my days were just so crazy that yeah. on the weekends when I had time off, I would invite my friends over. I would put on nice music. There'd be natural light coming in my apartment. I would just root down in the present moment, make a cheese plate. And it truly was this like grounding yeah. experience. Were you shopping at Murray's? Were you like Whole Foods? I mean, Whole Foods got great cheese. Where were oh, yeah. You? Whole Where, Foods has great cheese. Always um, has. Always all over will. the place. I mean, I live in Greenpoint. I've yeah. been there for about eight years. So there's a lot of different great cheese shops there. Yep. There's um, Monger's Palette, which is great. There's yep. Whole Foods actually has a really nice cheese selection, especially in Williamsburg. They have a lot of local New York cheeses, Vermont yep. cheeses. You've named like three spots that I know of. And, and honestly, Eastern District, that's a great yeah, one. Yeah, that was the one we, our office used to be up in Greenpoint. We used to go there. Now, you mentioned music a few times. And like, I think a cynical listener would be like, okay, yeah, she talks about music. Everyone loves music. No, but you worked <laughs> in music. Yes. You had a really unique job. You were the music coordinator, uh, the band, sorry, the house band coordinator of the late night show with Stephen Colbert. What the yes. hell is that? That's yes. pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. So before I got into the world of cheese plating, I loved music and always had a passion for wanting to work in the music industry. So I went to Northeastern for music business. That was my major, minor in communications. And it's a great school because they do this thing called the co-op program where you just basically take a semester off and work. Yeah. And my first internship was at an artist management company. The next one was at uh, Tonight Show Jimmy Fallon when they launched their first season, which was amazing. And with after, like Questlove and the Roots, yeah. So yeah. he was on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, yeah. and then this was the whole shift to the Tonight Show oh, to take right, over right, kind right. of the main slot. And it was the most insane experience. I was working for the Roots and for the guest bands on the show. And when I left that internship, I remember telling my mom I had a year of school left, and I was like, all I want to do is work on a late night TV show in the music department. And she's like, Good luck. There's like four people. Like there's four late night hosts. Like figure it out. Okay, yeah. but you know, have bigger ideas than that. Oh my gosh. And I was like, I okay, mean, mom, mom giving you some straight talk, but also she's trying to be realistic. She's I being realistic. Yeah, I think you're so, picking your mom correctly. It's, yeah. She's being yeah. realistic. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. She's not trying to hurt my feelings. Yeah. So then I, you know, hit the ground running and hit everyone I knew being like, Hey, do you know if uh, Colbert is hiring anyone in their brand new music department that they've <laughs> never had before? Cause yeah. it just kind of worked out that way that Colbert is taking over for David Letterman. Uh, they were adding in this whole music department and just through kind of these emails that I sent and the universe working how it yeah. should. Um, I got an email from the house band like producer at um, Colbert and John Batiste was looking for a personal assistant and he's the band leader, yeah. was the band leader on the show. So at the time I was actually on tour with Megan Trainer, random other oh, part of my life. Megan Trainer, wow. Yeah. Like 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 managing the back I was uh, the VIP meet and greet coordinator. Oh, is like a Live Nation type of job? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we we met through a mutual friend cool. and became friends, and that was kind of this whole other touring journey. Yeah. But um, I left that to go interview, ended up getting the job at The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and worked that premiere as well. So I actually worked both Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert's premieres, which is insane. 
And that was four years of my life. I was I started out as the house band assistant, which basically meant like anything the house band needed. I did um, really long days, like yeah. 12, 13 hour work days. And then John Batiste, as his career was growing, he wanted me to work with him outside of the show as well. So this kind of morphed into, um, you know, coordinating for the house band and then working for John outside of the show, going oh, wow. to all of his shows on the road, going to galas with him, doing all the press with him, uh, basically being his like point person yeah. for his management team. And then it turned into just way too many roles. So I left The Late Show and was just with John full time. And this would be tour managing on the road, creative mm-hmm. directing music videos. So a lot of travel. And like, yes, travel is great, especially if it's for work. But man, it can be tough. Yeah. And it was it took a toll on me. Yeah. I think I was so young that, you know, I was this was between ages 23 and 27 that I was just so hungry to work in the music industry yeah. that I just put my head down and did it. But this is kind of where the love for cheese came in because when I would have time off, I needed something that I could do to kind of ignite my senses again and yeah. find that creativity again because you can only be so creative when you're a personal assistant. And granted, John gave me a lot of creative freedom with his, like I ran his social media. I got to um, creative direct performances on The Late Show for him. Like I did so many things for him, yeah. which is great. But again, that's like for his career and not for what I personally like to do, like you know, make cheese plates. Yeah, for no, fun. I mean, there's you, and also just be an art director, and your 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 vibe and vision is very clear, and you've got a great sense for that. A couple questions about your career at late night. Um, were there any bands that really surprised you in person, like that had incredible taste, but like great food taste, like that just like you understand, like they wanted to talk about food with you? No, it's funny because I kind of lived a double life there. Yeah, like no one didn't... really knew that. People knew that I ran the Instagram, but it didn't really have like a big following back then. Yeah. The Instagram really blew up um, at the end of 2018 and I ended up leaving the show in early 2019. Mm. So with the bands on the show, I didn't really, yeah, they didn't know that I was They didn't the know girl. that you were the cheese plate um, <laughs> spokesperson yeah. for the country. Um, did you ever backstage the food? Was there ever a situation where you got to actually style some food for a guest? Yes. So there was a scene with Cheech and Chong. Wow. And they were talking about, the whole bit was about how they want to legalize unpasteurized cheese and almost like legalize weed. But they're like, legalize unpasteurized cheese. And uh, funny. Good. I, <laughs> it was a good bit. Yeah. Um, pre like decriminalization and pre free. You know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Good, good bit back then. Yeah. yeah. So I got a call from the props department and they're like, Marissa, we need a cheese plate. And we know this is what you do <laughs> on the side. Can you make one for us? And I was like in the middle of something and I dropped everything and I was like, all right, let's go. So I went with the props team to the grocery store. We picked out all these items and I styled a plate and uh, they held it up. In the scene, which was great, so cool. claim to fame. But yeah, that was that was one of the times. Um, and then besides that, I think you know they they had cheese and charcuterie backstage, but it was very simple. It was like a wedge of cheese and like a loaf of bread. Was it like probably camembert brie, like a soft? No. So this is the thing. It was like a hard cheese. It was like a Gruyere and it wasn't even pre-cut. And I would walk by the dressing being like, this is not an accessible way for people to graze. Yeah. <laughs> cut into that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Cut into it. Get in like get like a plane or Make a glide. Make some rustic crumbles. Like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Salami River, too. Like, let's yes. just, just like upgrade the Salami River. I mean, I love that. Did you make that up, that term? Salami I did. River? I did. And I trademarked it, too. <laughs> oh, thank God. I was wondering if there's actually some trademark going on because with some of these. So yeah. you invented the Salami River. Yeah. Oh, my God. It just honestly, it was I was with my friends and I was making a cheese plate and I always make or I used to always make these meat rivers that meet. I don't know. 
Yeah. Just designs of meat flowing down the cheese plate. And there's a few different purposes for it. One is that, you know, it's a great focal point. When you take salami out of the packaging, it's usually all stuck together. So you want to fold it, make it look nice. And then also when you take a slice out of the river, it expands on itself. So it's almost like a self-filling. It's like the currents. Yeah, yeah. It's great. And it makes the plate look really nice. So I was building a plate and I'm like, yeah, just have my little meat here. And I think I said Salami River out loud and my friend stopped me and she's like, what did you just say? And I was like, you know, it's it looks like a river of meat. And she's like, that's that's funny. So then I started saying it online more and more yeah. and then people started to catch on. And I wanted to do a merch item that said Salami River on it. And in order to do that, my lawyer was like, well, you should trademark it. Yeah. So I trademarked it. And then I remember posting... Um, a photo of my like official trademark from the U.S. government. It's so great. And all these people on Instagram were like, oh my gosh, does that mean I can't make salami rivers anymore? <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. I don't own salami. The concept. <laughs> you can't put your market concept. Yeah. It's the term. Yeah. Oh my God. So what kind of great merch are you going to have put salami river on? I feel like you have got some ideas. Are we talking like like dad hats? Are we talking like onesies? I mean, <laughs> Onesies, yes. Right? Um, the, so the Salami River shirt was made in 2019. This was okay. like a vintage product at this point. It was yeah. a white t-shirt with red script along the uh, the pocket. So Salami River, very classy. Yeah. Um, my new merch, though, I have a few a few things up my sleeve for the book tour, which is going to be fun. Yep. We have a tour tee. I, I basically take everything that I learned from the music industry and apply it to cheese. And that's kind of like how I live my life these days it's, it's you say it with a little bit like you're being kind of like ironic but like honestly more people in food need to like learn to have like style points like you really do have style points it's really oh, fucking you. cool no i mean it like cr credit to you to make like a food really exciting like a lot like allison rome the same way like great like art direction and really just smart roll out of a tour and having a tour i mean it's really hard to do a tour yeah yeah it definitely <laughs> It's been a busy month. Um, yeah. I had this whole idea for the cheese party tour, actually, for my first cookbook. And I wanted to do something because cheese plates are so communal. They bring people together. Every time I, you know, throw a party, it's always we would throw these cheese parties in college and mm -hmm. outside of college. And we'd just have a bunch of people over and have a good time. And for my book tour, I wanted anything but just a quiet little signing in a bookstore. I love independent bookstores. Yeah. We're supporting all of them on the tour. Beautiful. But I don't want to do that for my event. No. Um, just because people show up and they expect cheese to be there. So we need a bigger space. Yeah. Um, so I had this whole plan to team up with hotels and um, the Hoxton was going to be a partner back in 2020. And we had 16 cities like booked and ready to go. Oh, no. And then yeah. March showed up. Yeah. And it was a wild time because it was like my first cookbook. I put all my work in. I quit my job. I'm like, yeah. let's go. And of course, you know, nothing we could do about it. But this time around, I was like, nothing's stopping the cheese party <laughs> tour. We're yeah. doing it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, I teamed up with a bunch of different venues across the country. I kind of just wanted to pick places that were female owned or just really cool vibe. Like we're going to Palm Springs. We're going yeah. to Lady and Larder, which is one of my favorite female owned cheese shops in LA yeah. and throwing these quote unquote cheese parties. Yeah. So what to expect at a cheese party. Yeah. Um, there's going to be at our launch party in New York City on April 15th. We have a massive build your own cheese board station. And at the end, there's a section where you can take a photo of your cheese plate in this like personalized photo booth just for the plate itself. Marissa, <laughs> this can be like permanent. Um, you know, I think it could be a, I, Have yeah. you like dabbled in this idea of like the cheese museum, like the ice cream museum experiential, but making it not corny and cool? That would be amazing. That That's a great like, idea. Like do it. Like I feel like <laughs> having like this like walk through progressive, like build a cheese plate in a cool, man, I'm 
I love the way you're talking. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And another thing that I wanted to do at these events, um, you know, because the cheese boards are so visually beautiful, I always had an idea of doing like an art show and like blow up these illustrations and blow up these photos. But again, kind of like tying in all the senses, um, what we're going to do at the launch party is blow up four different illustrations of the cheese plates in the book and then underneath put a bite from the plate so you can kind of taste the plate while you look at it. Yeah. And in the book for each plate, there's four different bite builders that tell you how to pair the items on the plate in a way that is intentional because I think something the first book lacks is direction on how to eat the plate and you know pairings are personal but it's helpful to be educated on okay this goes with this um and i wanted to kind of feature these cheese plates at the party but the second someone gets there it's going to be ruined if you just dive into it so by blowing up these photos you kind of have the visual element and then the taste element and then maybe the music matches the plate i think it's really fun and and it's totally interactive now we've talked about like holistically about cheese boards, but I've had calls with you and you're really smart when it comes to like, actual picking cheeses. You know, you have a culinary background and I just want to get into some like real X's and O's. So just first off, I have to know what is the greatest slept on cheese for a cheese plate? Like what, what do we got to look for? Oh, there's so many. Yeah. I mean, I really recently I've really loved stracciatella on cheese plates. Mm-hmm. I always butcher stracci. Stracciatella. I, Stracciatella. I, I, it's always, I don't know, is it a pasta or a cheese? I'm pretty much always like, is it a pasta or a cheese? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, it's pasta cheese. Yeah, pasta um, cheese. Yeah, the inner curds of uh, burrata, basically. Yeah, but, it's like the yeah the mushy, gooey part of burrata. Yeah, but like if you put that in a bowl and drizzle really good extra virgin olive oil, flaky salt on there, a little bit of pepper, and serve that with like really nice sourdough bread, yeah. that's like, people just don't usually think about, you know, cheese in bowls. So yeah. I think diving into that is very... Uh, slept on. Yep. I also am like a big fan of um, really like aged Gouda with the crystals, yep. like the crunch in there. Um, it's sometimes hard to find really good aged Gouda. So you kind of like, you know, if you're at Trader Joe's, you probably won't find it. But um, when I, you know, recommend cheeses for cheese plates, I always tell people to always shop first at their local cheese shop or at like a Whole Foods or a place where you can talk to the cheesemonger. Yeah. Because cheesemongers are so knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. They give you any sort of taste of any cheese. Yeah. If you're a fan of, say, brie, and you're like, I like brie style, they'll give you 17 different types of brie style cheeses that you might have not known about from local farms or from France. So I think, um, you know, always going to those places first. And when you build a cheese plate, there are so many elements to it. But I always say invest in good cheese first, and then the rest will follow. Super smart. We'll get into the non-cheese elements of the board. Are there any domestic American producers you want to call out that you really enjoy, that you really like buying for your boards? Yeah, I mean, I love Vermont Creamery. Their cheeses are some of my favorites. Jasper Hill is great. Yeah, Jasper Hill is like, they've expanded. I feel like it's Jasper Hill. They have so many different cheeses now, which is amazing. Crown Finish Caves was so good. They closed, though. They're in Crown Heights. They're more of like um, an aging uh, cheese cave. Um, On the West Coast, there's um, Point Reyes. They do Bay Blue, which is one of my favorite blue cheeses. Mm -hmm. I always say Bay Blue is a great gateway cheese for people who don't like blue cheese because it kind of has like underlying notes of sweetness to it. Um, Sweetgrass Dairy is great down in Georgia. Um, Oh, my gosh. There's 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 so I have to shout out Consider Bardwell. Oh, well, Consider Bardwell. Yeah, they're great. Uh, That's my literary agent, Angela Miller. She runs it. Sleepy fact that one of the best agents in the business for cookbooks particularly is a makes world class cheese. Yes, that's incredible. Also, they had a little scare for a minute, right? They did. They so they had to totally trash an entire run because of uh, an outbreak. Yeah, in COVID, too. During COVID. And um, I'm not sure the the update, but I know there's they're definitely back in production. I've been up to her farm and and 
lovely cheeses you can find them at lot of the John George restaurants. Also, Cato Corner Farm in Connecticut. Yeah. This is like a funky little, it's tiny, but um, they sell them in my local cheese shop. I'm from Connecticut. Nice. I love, love that place. And uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many little ones. You're, you're in upstate New York, right? I live in the Hudson Valley. Exactly. Um, there's some great cheeses. Yeah. Like Chatham Cheese yeah. Company is great up there. Yep, yep, um, yep. I went there in March, 2019. I did a cheese tour of the Northeast. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. So you do, you do some travel for your research. Yeah. Just by myself. Just of course. Fun. Yeah, I did. In 2019, I had a little tour that I did where I um, met this woman who makes goat cheese and has this tiny farm, but it was kidding season. So all yeah. the little goats were born and I got to play with just a bunch of adorable baby goats and it was uh, incredible yeah goat cheese is polarizing i feel i feel chev and like the stuff you get in like the industrial packages is yeah. one thing but yeah. then you've got beautiful goat cheese oh my gosh soft ripened goat cheese is my favorite cheese favorite type love that you like have a take oh yeah i love it because you know people don't realize that when you have a really nice soft ripened goat cheese like capriol farms um in the midwest they have one called mm-hmm. sophia and it is similar to like a Humboldt fog. It has yeah. that ash in the middle, but a really ripe version of that is the most like buttery, gooey, yeah. delicious cheese. And you don't really get too much of that acidic lemon bite that some people don't like with a fresh chev. Um, so yeah, you need to like go into the aged goat cheeses because the flavor it rounds it out changes. a little bit. Yeah, the the citric acid kind of kick is not for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you write about cooking with cheese, too. It's not just, like, raw cheese in the plate. What are some great ways that we maybe don't think about cooking with cheese? Yeah, I mean, fondue, incredible. Yes. Um, Is that a year-round event? Can you can we can we talk about July oh, yeah. fondue? Yeah, I did a summer fondue cheese plate a few years ago. It's... it's Why not? But why not? You know, yeah. if you can have other hot food in the summer, yeah. you know, uh, hot dogs and hamburgers are hot. Why can't exactly. cheese be hot? <laughs> Having a fondue at a barbecue makes like almost too much sense because you've got your guacamole, you've got like your communal dipping and yeah. why not throw some cheese and bread? Right. And like you could even dip something refreshing in there like a cucumber, you know, yeah. for a little crunch moment. Definitely. Um, love cooking with melting cheeses. So, you know, like Gruyere and Emmental for fondue and for grilled cheeses. I'm a big fan of like little fancy grilled cheeses. But I also have been really into making dips lately. So like whipped feta, whipped ricotta whipped cottage cheese cottage cheese is having a moment right now but it is i and like up to like four or five six percent like high fat yeah yeah cottage cheese yeah it's having tiktok is going wild for cottage cheese yeah it's it's i mean do you have a tiktok presence i do um yeah. i was pretty big on tiktok in 2020 when you know, we we're all in our <laughs> i was homes. kind of a big deal in 2020 but i've pivoted but over now it to is the real. plummeted no no um it's just so hard to keep track of the algorithms these days yeah. like you know i i consistently post on tiktok still and yeah. one day a video will get like the other day i posted um a pasta salad yeah. with cheese in it and it got seven hundred thousand views and then the next video gets a thousand so it's just so hard to like yeah. know what the strategy is there but you you just keep putting out great content and i'll link to your socials in the, in the show notes because we should follow you oh, it's real fun you. stuff all right let's get into the non-cheese elements on the board because a board meaning like a single so i say board but it could be plate it could be board it could be river it could be platter <laughs> it could be anything anything it, flat if you, if you read the books, too, obviously there's a lot of inspiration there. But we've got your your foundational cheese elements. But what else are we thinking through? Yeah. So in the book, both books, you'll see that I have the cheese by numbers method. And this method is kind of my basis to building cheese boards. And I thought of it because when I was making cheese boards or cheese plates, um, 
I would make them in the same order every time. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be that way. And then I was actually with my little cousins over Thanksgiving and we were all drawing with colored pencils. I was like, I'm going to draw a cheese plate. So I drew a cheese plate and I realized that the sections of the cheese plate kind of represent almost a paint by numbers map. Um, So I merged those together and created cheese by numbers. So it kind of explains the elements that come together to make a cheese plate. And step one is cheese, which we discussed. Step two is meat. So any sort of charcuterie, um, salami, mortadella, prosciutto. I love to do pork products, yeah. but in the book, there's so many other things. We have um, grilled chicken. We have smoked salmon. Mm. There's a plate with hot dogs on it, actually. Yeah, for you know, like the grill. The grill grilled, night. Yeah, grill yeah, night. Or that. Yeah. I think I call it the hot grill summer plate. I, you yeah, you did do that, and I <laughs> thought that was wonderful. Thanks. Let's never let that go. Yeah, I, no. Yeah. Trademark. No, I'm kidding. Trademark it, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the meat is good because, you know, it's very complementary flavors to cheese. They're both salty. They're both mm-hmm. fatty. Um, you know, I love like a, a nice prosciutto with a Parmesan Reggiano or with a burrata. So you kind of want to think about um, the intensity of the meat when you're thinking of meat and cheese pairings, but mm-hmm. it's always a nice kind of complementary to the cheese. And then step three is produce. And yeah. this is where we kind of fill in the fresh notes and the fresh flavors, but also briny elements like cornichons and olives. I always feel brine is over freshness because you're obviously, it's sitting out for hours sometimes, That's right? the thing, yeah. I mean, if you're not serving your cheese plate right away, um, but the thing is like something like a cucumber, I feel like cucumbers are pretty slept on on cheese plates because they're a nice in-between refreshing palate cleanser. I can hear like three quarters of our listeners gagging. Probably. Because yeah. raw cucumbers are polarizing. Obviously, I I've, love raw I've showed my cards and I'm on the opposite <laughs> side of the spectrum, but I fully agree. What about zucchini versus cucumbers? Uh, raw zucchini you cannot do. I agree fully. So that's what some of people— Oh, people think about that with cucumbers? People will actually put zucchini what? into a raw format and it's like— yeah, I mean, man. I've had that on the, yeah, on a crudite platter, I'm sure. Yeah. But thinking about flavor-wise, like a raw zucchini doesn't have as much water in yeah. it. So it's like, at least with the cucumber, it is that in-between refreshing palate cleansing yeah. bite. Um, but again, you know, if you want to go in the briny world, yeah. cornichons are great. They have that really tart sharpness to yeah. them, um, which again is complementary to a lot of cheeses. Um, and with produce, I always like to say paint with your produce. This is where the Smart. color comes in with the cheese plate. And it, like the Salami River, I make produce ponds. So we can make little ponds <laughs> of produce around the plate. Is that trademark? That's not yet, but get maybe, there. Maybe no, the, <laughs> the produce ponds are really fun. I love yeah, that. yeah. So then after that, we go into um, our crunch. So yeah. crunch is super important because that's your vehicle for the cheese. So that can be a cracker. It could be bread. Um, specific crackers. I love flatbread crackers. Fruit and nut crackers are great. Um, and then you can also do nuts on the plate for a little texture element. And I always like to do a crunch plate on the side of my cheese plates. That oh, yeah. it's like easy to refill. Um, Smart. And yeah. it takes up less real estate on the plate so you can fill it up with more color. And I fun. love that. So the back to the cracker question. Okay. This is really, really interesting and challenging because you've got like a company like Cars, mm-hmm. which s- sells like five different types of crackers that are so f- yeah. different, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, totally. Do you have a preference if you're just looking at the Cars box of like the best type of cracker to use? Yeah. I mean, I personally like less flavor. So like the water crackers. The water. Just because there's so much flavor on the board already. And the thing is with like a fruit and nut crisp, there's already fruit and there's already nuts on the plate. So it kind of ties into that. But if you have like a garlicky Parmesan cracker that you're trying to pair with like, you know, 
strawberry, it yeah. might be a little conflicting. Or like yeah. an everything bagel seasoning, it might be a yeah, little conflicting. Yeah, and like people are at an event and you're like literally don't have time and even you don't even care. You're just like picking the first thing that hits your finger. Yeah, exactly. You know? So I'd say like the more tame the cracker flavor, the better. Smart. My favorite crackers right now are Rustic Bakery. They're yeah. um, based in Sonoma and they... They have like a tiny little bit of sweetness to them, but they're one of my favorites. They're, I love that baker. I've bought those crackers at Whole Foods a lot. Yeah, they're pretty great. much a lot. Um, can it ever be too salty? Can a cracker ever be too salty for a cheese plate? I think yes, because cheese itself is already pretty salty depending yeah. on, I mean, if you're using like a Parmesan or sharp cheddar or Gruyere, it has a lot of salt in it already. But you could do a salty cheese with, like, a fresh mozzarella that See, doesn't really have cool. too much salt. So I think consider the cheese on your plate, and if your cheese is really high in salt, then go with a more, you know, less salty cracker. But just kind of play around with the intensities on the plate. Can you ever do the cheese crisps for cheese plates? Yeah, you could. I think cheese crisps would actually be really good with, like— um Maybe a fresh goat cheese. Something very, like, fresh and a little more mild. Yeah. Yeah, that's aged. So then after that, you get to step five, which is dips. And this is where we really pack in the flavor and pack in the pairing. So um, like meat and cheese, how they're very similar and complementary in flavor, this we go to the polar opposite sweet end. So we have fig jam. We have raspberry jam. You have honeycomb. And this is where you can yeah. really play with different flavor notes on the plate. Um with produce, like with fresh fruit, they're not overpoweringly sweet. It's more of a texture element. So it's something that's juicy or something that is a little jammy. Whereas like uh, something like a honeycomb is so sweet that it really balances out those two intensities yep. from the other end. And then the last step, which is my favorite part, is the garnish. And this is the finishing touches yeah. that make that cheese plate stand out. And this is where I like to garnish my cheese plate with edible flowers or mm -hmm. herbs. And with herbs, too, this can be a polarizing conversation mm -hmm. because some people are like, why are you just throwing rosemary on a cheese plate? And yeah. <laughs> is it just for decor? But I think you can be smart about the herbs that you put on your plate. Like if you're using feta, you can garnish with parsley. If you're doing mozzarella, you can garnish with basil. To be clear, you need to be able to use the thing you're garnishing with, right? Mostly. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, in the winter, I will garnish with some sprigs of rosemary and no okay. one's sitting there gnawing on rosemary. But I get it. I thought you were going to say you, you garnish with like a peanut butter cup. Or <laughs> yeah. like that. No, I stay away from candy. Yeah. <laughs> the candy garnish is, is not great. Now, I have to ask you or make you know, it's more of an observation. Marissa, you, this is cooking. Like I have to be clear here and our listeners, the way you talk about it, it's not just some like thing a curated thing like it's actual cooking thank you yep. for saying that because i feel like i'm constantly trying to figure out what i'm doing you're doing <laughs> a hell of a great job and but like thinking about flavor but like the composition the way i mean it's, it's harder than some cooking some saute stovetop cooking is like dump and heat yeah you know basically but you're talking about you have to be at your highest level of representation because obviously that's everything mm -hmm. but like you have to actually think about flavor so I, I respect it thank you yeah and I think this book really showcases that a lot more than the first one and it just showcases my growth too you know yeah. someone who came from the music industry and stepped into the world of cheese I had so much imposter syndrome and never felt really legitimate and mm -hmm. I think um I took the last few years to learn so much and um you know, this book really, it talks about the pairings in depth, like I just yeah. mentioned, and talks about different types of cheeses you can find that are similar. So, for example, like I do my favorite brie style cheeses and I recommend some local cheeses or American made cheeses that I love. Um, but, yeah, I think with the trend uh, that happened on social media in the past yeah. few years and like the the boom of the charcuterie board, as we see on TikTok, the 
it almost lost the legitimacy because yeah. people started throwing like marshmallows on a plate and you know anything they wanted on a board and called it charcuterie which mm-hmm. is not charcuterie it was like a grazing board That's exactly they, they call them like a grazing board and to be clear what you're doing here is not a grazing board it's not a pinterest grazing board it's actually like a pretty high level culinary endeavor which is a cheese plate yeah cheese plate that's why I call them cheese plates. That's why I never call them charcuterie boards because a lot of them don't have meat. And if it doesn't have charcuterie yeah. on it, it should not be a charcuterie board. <laughs> I love that. It's a good, I feel like you should go um, up against a couple like the big charcuterie board TikTokers in like a debate, like a friendly debate. Friendly debate, yeah. I think it'd be fun. <laughs> Marissa, I always like to tap in with like New Yorkers who are out and about, you're, you're, you're active and you're cool. So where are you eating out right now? Where are some restaurants, bars that you love that, you know, we have a lot of our listeners are, are visiting the city this spring and summer. Where should we, we be going? Yeah. So like I said, I live in Greenpoint and I don't really leave my neighborhood much because it's the best place ever. Um, (laughs) It's the only way to live in New York when you believe that your neighborhood is the best. Exactly. I actually went to L.A. for two months this year to try to skip winter. And I was just like, this isn't Greenpoint. (laughs) Um, Echo Park is not Greenpoint. Yeah. So speaking of Greenpoint, um, I love Sama Street. It's one of my all time favorite restaurants in New York. Very underrated. People don't really know about it. Definitely it's, not. It's the first time I've heard of it. I worked in that neighborhood for two and a half years. You've never Som- heard of Sama Street? No. It your, has your a five-star is- rating on Google. I know. It is the most Preach. amazing um, Asian fusion and beautiful cocktails, amazing staff. It's a hole in the wall on Manhattan Ave. It's on Manhattan. Is it near Franklin, the corner? It's uh, kind of north. North of, of there. Yeah, yeah north yeah. of Greenpoint Ave. Yeah. So go up there. I highly recommend it. Um, if we're going into Williamsburg territory, I love Laser Wolf. Yeah. They've been awesome. One of my favorites. Um, it really is. The solid team there, the way they put it together as a dining um, experience. The whole, um, the spread that you get yeah. in the beginning. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it's so nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also love, I mean, there's just so many new restaurants that have been popping up in my neighborhood, which is great. I just tried Verge Sushi the other day, which is brand new. Yeah. Um, the first like kind of high quality sushi place in Greenpoint, which mm-hmm. is great. There's so many amazing Japanese restaurants that are popping up. Yep. Rule of Thirds is amazing. Beautiful place. Um, I love that place. Chez Matant, I love. Yep. Um, Diandi, Oshimoko. You are like that's my old that's my old office right there. I was yeah. in the big the big chocolate factory. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So you travel for cheese. You've hinted that you've done these solo road trips, but I feel like you've got a future of maybe more travel for cheese. I feel like you've you got to get out in the world now that we're post COVID. You're going out on tour soon. Where would you want to travel for cheese and how do you travel for cheese? Yeah, so I actually did a uh, impromptu European trip last summer with my friends and um, I called it Cheese Pray Love. And this was something that was not planned. So it good. Was, <laughs> I joined multiple friends on their own respective trips and then made it all about cheese, which you're welcome, friends. This was this was a fun thing. but <laughs> It was a bit of a Trojan horse situation. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started in Italy, and we were in Lake Como, um, Rome, Tuscany, and Sardinia. And my two friends had this trip to do Lake Como, Rome, and Tuscany. And I was like, guys, do you mind if we just do a little pit stop in Sardinia? And they're like, what? That's an <laughs> island. Like, where, where are we pit going? Stop. Yeah. And I have these friends who I made through the world of Instagram, Central Fromaggi, and they are a over 100-year-old cheese company in Sardinia, and they make the most amazing um, pecorino, sheep's milk cheese. And they have this, uh, they have one that they sell in the States, a few, but the Moliterno al Tartufo, it's a truffle pecorino. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite cheeses, I've used it for a ton of my in-person workshops, and they invited me to come see the farm there. So 
I made us all hop on a plane and do a pit stop. And Sardinia is the most magical place I've ever been. It's I feel like it's great when you go to a place and you don't hear anyone speaking English yeah. and you're like, yeah, we made it to the Italian vacation spot. Yep, yep. Um, but the beaches are like the Caribbean and this um, this dairy farm was just so much fun. And it kind of spurred this idea of, you know, I, I documented all of this on Instagram and I called it Cheese Pray Love. I made hats, made merch. So great. So you had like a merch, like for your, your, your crew, you had hats? For literally, so for my friends that I saw and then I put them on my merch store. So then other people bought fun. these hats. I, I did a limited run of like 30 of them. So fun. Um, but I started making these Instagram reels and I went to Italy and then I went to France to see another friend and then Portugal with two other friends. And every city I went to, I made it my mission to find like the best cheese. Like, you know, we, in Lyon, we went to the farmer's markets and those are just insane. I love the farmer's markets there oh and, and like the food halls there. And next Leon is level. Great. Yeah, next level. And my friend Charlotte, who um, lives in Lyon, she's French. She was like so gung ho with the cheese pray love thing. She's like, <laughs> all right, I get off the plane and she has like seven cheeses laid out for me she's to try. She's so great. Um, Charlotte, you're the best friend. Yeah, so shout nice. out Charlotte Cadu. Yeah. Her. But yeah, it, on Instagram, people were so... In, excited about it. And everyone was asking me questions on where to go and what to do. And I started um, writing these travel blogs on my website. And I got so many questions from people asking if I would ever like lead a tour and a cheese travel tour. And yeah. that's something that I'm thinking about um, more in depth because I feel like it would be so much fun to yeah. bring people along on this journey and actually have maybe more of a structured trip to do versus me good, just... Watch this space, everyone. Watch this <laughs> space. It's gonna, it's mercy you're onto something. I think everyone wants to have a reason to travel. Yeah. Um, but with some downtime, as you mentioned, you go to the beach, but also eat some great cheese. Exactly. I mean, what sounds better? You mentioned Anne Saxelby in your acknowledgments, and I wanted to ask you how important Anne um, is to you and who she is, because I think uh, it'd be, it's a great reason to talk about Anne. Yeah. Anne was, um, she passed away, sadly, a few years ago. Um, and she was the first person to really bring a lot of awareness and attention to American cheesemakers. Her shop, Saxelby Cheese, which still is in New York today, um, featured all of these different cheesemakers that probably couldn't get their cheese into a Whole Foods or into a big space. And she always really pioneered the movement for artisanal cheesemaking because when you think about cheese here, um, we think about European cheese, you know, Brie, Gruyere, all of the protected cheeses of Europe. And the governments make that possible for them. You know, they support cheesemakers yeah. because of the traditions and the history. And here it's not really like that. So I think Anne really did a great job um, being at the forefront of that. And personally for me, I mean, as I mentioned before, how leaving the music industry, I did feel imposter syndrome stepping into cheese. Anne welcomed me with open arms. She was the kindest, most That's knowledgeable person. Definitely the stories I've heard about Anne. I've got, Incredible. I, to, I was able to interview her a few times and meet her and her husband. Um, Cause it could be really easy to be like snobby towards an inter interloper. Oh, some, for sure. Yeah. Especially I'm, I was 27, yeah. just like an Instagram, like yeah. girl, you know, yeah, yeah. eventually as I broke into the cheese world, I ended up being the uh, resident cheese contributor at food 52, which was amazing. Nice. And I did an article all about cheddar and I asked Anne, I was like, listen, Anne, you are the queen of cheese. Can I interview you for this? And so she cool. gave me all the information I needed and more. And then we hosted a in-person, or it wasn't in-person, it was a virtual cheese class together where we featured um, artisanal cheeses. And then we did a cheese plate building lesson where so good. everyone can order a box from Saxby's Cheese. Um, but it was just a huge loss to the community. And, you know, she, it's every day she'll be missed. So in my book, I do um, 
give a shout out to her and to the Anne Saxby Legacy Fund, which raises um, funds for people to go work on sustainable farms and learn about dairy farming. Throughout upstate New York, mostly, which is great. Yeah. Let me close by asking you, if you could have a restaurant name a menu item after you, what would that menu item be? It's funny because I've been listening to the Taste podcast and I was preparing for the cookbook question, but we switched it up. We're pivoting <laughs> the cookbook question. You, you've acknowledged it. Um, I've gotten some feedback from some some dedicated listeners and they've they've said, maybe move on from that question. Wow. Well, I love this question. We're going to ask you that question, by the way, at the end, but I want to. <laughs> oh, OK, OK. Give so, me this answer. I would like to have a combo meal, um, if that's allowed, at uh, Bernie's in Williamsburg, Greenpoint. And it will be the mozzarella sticks and a martini combo because my initials, Marissa Mullen, mozzarella sticks, martini, Marissa Mullen. And it could be the Marissa Mullen combo meal. I think that is... It needs to get on. Like, let's let's make that happen. Yeah. Double M. And I love that the alliteration and everything. All right. We will ask you the question. If you could write a cookbook or a fruit culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world. Marissa, what would that book be? Yeah. So I was thinking long and hard about this. Um, I think it would be a series of photos. So, like, mainly a photo-driven book that is a bird's eye view of different tables of how people entertain for appetizers. So how, what they put out, what they, Love how do it. they design their tables all over the world. But like when the appetizer of the party, appetizer like when of the you party. walk into a house, it's like is- what you see as like appetizer course. And you'll see the florals. You'll see, even if there's no florals, it could be, there'll be one with like a frat house and it's a bowl of chips, but have it be like a bird's eye view of all these different types of spreads from all around the world. And then maybe another step further is that we can sort it by color. It's got to happen for a fun <laughs> art book or just like a, yeah, cool like a coffee table book. Coffee table book. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's, Let's do get it. it done. Marissa Mullen, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. Daisy Aliotto, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me, or thank you for letting me invite myself on. It was a great exchange we had on Twitter. Yeah, a healthy exchange of ideas, I think, is what the world needs now. Okay, let's go into dirt because it's a must-read. I'll link to in the show notes. Please subscribe to the newsletter. And, um, Daisy, what is dirt in the sense of covering the topics we cover on taste, which is like food and food culture? We've described it a few different ways. Um, I will say like digital culture broadly, which touches so many different things. Um, We definitely have a bent towards entertainment, but entertainment means a lot online. So pretty much any area of culture you can imagine, um, we're trying to cover it through the lens of how it manifests itself digitally. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, if this would help somebody who's unfamiliar grasp it a little better, we've been called like the child of Vice and the New Yorker. And we've also been called the village voice for the Internet. Interesting. I like the village voice comparison the best out of those. those yeah. Comparisons. I like well, that. I guess it's a super yeah. big compliment. I hope you take that as that. When you work on something every day and you wake up thinking about it and you go to bed thinking about it like I do, because it's what, you know, being a startup founder is, um, you, it's hard to see the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. So and, and similar to like when people would ask me when I was freelancing, what do you write about or like what's the thread that runs through all of your work? It's so much easier to have an outsider identify that. Yeah. Um, so 
I'm just happy to be perceived. Now, I have some specific food-related questions because there's, especially as food is articulated um, online, first is NFTs. Mm-hmm. First question is, are NFTs dead? And second, it seemed like 12 to 20 months ago, this like idea of the restaurant NFT, like pay X for Y and receive a meal plus something else was maybe viable. So those are like a two-part question. Yeah, I think it's important to make a distinction between the blockchain and then like NFTs and cryptocurrency. Definitely trying to make the distinction with yeah. that question. It's NFTs um, particularly, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't think it was a loaded question yeah. at all. But the way that I think about the blockchain is as an architecture and cryptocurrency is like real estate. So you have the environment that the financial speculation can form a layer over. Mm-hmm. But that environment exists as um, interlocking relationships no matter what, whether it's financialized or not. Um, and I think there's a lot of potential there. NFTs are like a receipt that correlate with. Yeah. Poorly <laughs> um, designed usually. Yeah. A very poorly designed yeah, receipt. Yeah. They correlate with transactions on the blockchain. So yeah. I think fundamentally people have seen it as an opportunity to re-architect relationships. For me and Dirt, our experiment is around um, could you use Web3, the blockchain, and the fundamentals of it to re-architect the relationship between the subscriber and the publication and improve on the digital media environment of the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. So like equity for founders and writers, um, changing the model, moving away from like the ad back, back like CPM-based advertising model and doing something slightly different? Yeah, or even something as simply uh, simple as like not getting logged out of the paywall every two months and having to put your credentials back in. Yeah, um, annoying as fuck, as we all know. Bringing everyone into the ecosystem as a streamlined identity that could be their identity in the community as well. Um, that would externalize a lot of the stuff that they care about as a consumer without requiring them to give up the privacy of their, like, actual demographic data, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that the blockchain enables. Um, So I think I spent a lot of time thinking about how this could change the experience and improve it for the reader. How could it improve the experience of being a media company for other publishers? And how could it improve, ultimately, Mm -hmm. the experience of the advertiser, which... um, nobody likes to talk or think about, but I think advertising will always exist in some form. Mm -hmm. Um, So is there a better way to do it than what we have now, Um, which is a pretty low bar. So I would say yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, to your point about, okay, restaurants doing NFTs. So, you know, if you think about the blockchain as more of the relationship layer, it makes sense that anyone who's sort of operated on a membership or loyalty model in the past might want to play in that pool. Mm-hmm. And I think um, maybe there's more natural corollaries for stuff that already sort of exists as a social club. Yeah. And restaurants are that now. Yeah. I mean, with reservations being at the hardest they've ever been, most difficult to book tables, and also with re- reservations being a, a real clear form of cultural currency for diners, um, comparing it to a social club is is, is sound. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think maybe restaurant groups that have already uh, done a lot of custom technology on the back end to understand who their customer is, maybe don't need that blockchain opportunity. But with a larger restaurant group, especially something that's global, it could create an interesting opportunity to create interoperable Mm -hmm. rewards for somebody who comes in with a singular identity and then moves between 
different properties yeah. around the world. Yeah. Um, so I definitely see a value in that, but it's not my industry, so I can't speak to it. No, but you do cover within the pages of Dirt plenty of food topics, and I'll get to the mukbang conversation because I think that's cool. But, like, what about Fly Fish Club? Like, that was, like, Tom Colicchio's backed. Maybe I'm misspeaking. I don't know if it's Tom Colicchio, but it was. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't know much about it. I think what I will say is NFT or not, whether you want to call it an NFT or a digital collectible, um, in order to be viable, it really can't exist as a gimmick that's layered over something that's not going to be a viable business anyway. Yeah. Dirt, for example, needs to succeed and stand on its own two feet as a media company, an intellectual property company, whatever you want to call it. And so if you have a restaurant that doesn't serve good food, it doesn't create a good <laughs> experience, having an NFT isn't going to change that. Yeah. Um, if you have a restaurant that is delivering on everything that a restaurant should be and you want to add a digital collectibles into the mix, I think that's cool. Go for it. But um, I think the conversation initially, and given especially what was happening in the NFT market at the time, which was projects that were primarily based on financial speculation and not utility, um, it was, I think, easier to dismiss it as a gimmick. But if the restaurant shows that it has longevity and a real community and a yeah. real um, purpose as hospitality yeah. entity, then great. <laughs> no, it feels like window dressing a little bit. And I agree, like, you have to be, like, obviously dope with the food and, and have a core, like, competency about, uh, like, cooking food, not creating a, a token. Um but let's get back to the mukbang article you wrote in your publication, or you didn't write it, but it was published, um, about this idea of the A-list mukbang, which, you know, and you kind of like marinated on the idea, no pun intended, about um, hot ones. Yeah. And how we like, as a culture, are watching people eat food in different ways online. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, you, you've, you've pulled up some cool threads there. Yeah, that was an article written by Terry Nguyen, who's our senior yeah. writer. Her and I talked about it ahead of time. Um, she was pulling at this thread of Hot Ones and Chicken Shop Date. Yep, Chicken Shop Date too. Yeah, the latest iterations of something that I started observing. I think it kind of goes back to like that Obama BuzzFeed interview or, you know, Obama on Between Two Ferns, which was this idea of at the time it was like millennials as the primary content consumer. You know, we want to see politicians and mm. celebrities in these dressed down environments. And I think the assumption that time was like, the less formal the environment, the more honesty mm. you're getting. And now with TikTok and influencers and all of the externalized lifestyle, for lack of a better word, that um, social media provides, you can no longer assume that uh, a less formal environment is a one-to-one -one with having an honest conversation. Yeah, because we've gotten we've gotten really good at doing less formal. Exactly. Formally. And in fact, like a lot of the lack of formality is manufactured. Yeah. People have started to reverse engineer things that feel authentic and that becomes a format in and of itself. And so what she was saying through the piece is like, here's a little bit of a last bastion of honesty, authenticity, the ability to throw somebody who's been media trained out the wazoo off of their mm -hmm. um, equilibrium and it's giving them really hot sauce <laughs> or eating wings with them. Um, so food, she kind of poses food as like this sort of last intermediary that can force 
if not true intimacy, at least a level of honesty that you wouldn't be getting otherwise. Yeah. And I think that's exactly why we are drawn to food stories as a culture. It's a universal uh, idea. It's a concept that we all can recognize. And I think food content, be it mukbang, which there's amazing mukbangs on on YouTube, which is just like literally folks eating a lot of food and, and sharing thoughts, but also like real like verite style like food documentary people fucking love that shit because it feels as real as it could possibly get it's not like a red carpet celebrity stuff do you when you say verite do you mean like chef's table actually i don't think of that as verite i all. think it's like that's actually that manufactured but if you go back to when it came out it felt ultra authentic it like did. i right. remember just having my mind blown by the francis malman episode and now <laughs> i think in retrospect, it feels too polished, but um, it's polished because of what that format became. I think, you know, especially like Jiro Dreams of Sushi was like the first version, right? Exactly. Same, um, same yeah, creators. Yeah. It didn't feel polished. It felt like a yeah. privileged view. But with the repetition of that format, now we see it as artifice. Yeah. Which is very interesting. Actually, I think that links in with the death of podcasts. Yeah, we'll get to that. We're talk about. Spoiler. But, I mean, do you agree? I, do, I, I totally agree. I think back then it was a form of food media that was was refreshing. And I think that the way they shot it obviously um, made a lot of, it, it, it like smoothed it out in a way, but it still wasn't f- overly stylized. I think also seeing like mall men in his, like the many women in his life was an interesting, it wasn't at that point, like we weren't seeing a lot of that on television. It was mostly studio stand and stir um so i think like documentary style food programming is cool i think people are off that now especially since the end of bourdain it seems like we we kind of as a culture want to go back to the stand and stir can we talk about that for a second i actually bourdain popped into my mind as you were talking yeah um i always get emotional thinking and talking about him yeah i've been thinking about him a lot lately i don't know why actually i think there's a lot of i've seen some tweets off and on pictures of him uh, people talking about him as a source of like positive masculinity. And I think just today, like somebody was like listing off all of these um, masculinity influencers and, and saying, okay, we agree all these people are horrible. Andrew Tate, He's, Joe Rogan. Oh, I thought you were going to say Harry Styles. Uh, no, <laughs> he's okay. We'll leave him. Okay, good. <laughs> Harry's catching some strays. No, um, you know, and then it's like, okay, we, we agree these aren't the right masculinity influencers or whatever. So like who is? And like if I could quote tweet that, I would say Anthony Bourdain. But of course, he's he's not alive anymore. Yeah. So I actually think that this is his entry into the public consciousness actually mirrors what we just talked about, which is like something that starts off authentic and becomes artifice, which is Kitchen Confidential was not uh, a dude bro chef memoir in the artificial sense because it was the first. Yeah. So it was the authentic memoir. And now, of course, when you read a chef memoir – you're reading it through the evolution of that medium, not the individual's voice. Yeah, there was something so special about him. Um, I don't know. What do you think it was? I agree as a symbol of masculinity. I think that's a really uh, interesting point to look to him uh, in a very complicated human being with lots of reporting on why his background is maybe not what we all assume. Um, But as a media, uh, that show, you know, obviously changed the game for everyone i mean it was it was a style of it was like a it was food media with point of view i mean it was it was clearly done every episode especially in later seasons had a visual reference that was either an old film or an old 
you know, camera, piece of equipment. So that like innovated the way I think we think about food television. Um, and Chef's Table is similar. I think the way that they were using certain equipment and the way that they presented the the stories of these singular chefs was was definitely new. But now, again, I, I still think we're moving away from it. Also, the issue of the fact that like being a chef actually is not that singular. Being part of a kitchen is part of being a part of like a really big team. True. And the bear, you know, I think really threw a wrench in, in that perception. Oh, amazing show. I've actually yeah. been listening to the pod, uh, podcast. Yeah. Soundtrack. yeah so, so the podcast is not dead. You've been listening to lots no, of podcasts. It's dead. It's dead. No, um, <laughs> I've been listening to the bear soundtrack. Yeah. Lots of Wilco. It's great. Counting Crows. Yeah. Um, I have the music taste of a divorced dad. Nice. Let's talk a little bit about the metaverse, which is, I think, a topic that many are interested in seeing play out, uh, obviously with Meta's investment in it, blah, 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 but also the way food and cooking can potentially play out in this metaverse that we are kind of obsessed with right now still. Yeah, I think the number one misconception about the metaverse, and I think uh people who have talked about the metaverse have fueled this misconception is like it's not a place. Um, <laughs> I think I think I'm probably paraphrasing a lot of other people by saying this, but like the metaverse is more of like the tipping point where um, and I, I I don't know if you know who David Rudnick is, really smart designer and thinker, but I went to a talk by him last week and he was talking about this idea of primacy, like which is, you know, the prevailing view and entering a generation where um, we flipped from people having physical primacy reflected online to a generation that will like see the digital image as the the prime, prime. image. Yeah. And, yeah. and then the physical sort of secondary. That's what I think about when I think about the metaverse. Yeah. I think about like flipping. I think it's a big, a big part of it is that tipping point. Yeah. But something I think a lot about with dirt um and I think will be true for a long time because we do have control over these things is um, thinking about it as delivering a digital experience that can enrich your life offline um, and then maybe ultimately delivering offline experiences that can enrich your life online. And I think that that could be true for food as well. Like the kind of sexiness and weird sort of red herring of trying to talk about like smell vision mm -hmm. or like food that you can't really taste. It's it's stupid and it <laughs> takes you further away from what's actually valuable in exploring a new technology, which is what are the things that we know to be true? And how can I take things that I know to be true and use this technology to enhance them? So for example, for me, what's a thing that I know to be true? I know to be true that People feel a very emotional connection to magazines. People, there's a lot of people alive today who felt a very emotional connection to Rolling Stone and Vogue mm -hmm. and that print product, including myself. Um, and that connection can uh, morph into the connection that a new generation might feel with brands and publications and, I guess, intellectual property that they first encounter online. Um, it doesn't matter that they're not going to touch it in print because it's about what magazines offered, which was like a dream of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. 
and the opportunity to inhabit somebody else's taste and point of view. So I think that's true for food as well. If you think about it, the metaverse is another venue opportunity to take this shifting primacy and say, um, what is the digital experience that you could have with food that would enhance your offline experience of food and vice versa? And I think about cooking instruction. I think about the way I think the way the metaverse plays into my theory, pet theory, is that it's a new way to learn to cook in the physical world by learning or observing or feeling um, a cooking demonstration or going to a restaurant in the metaverse and being able to travel, say you're grounded in North America, being able to travel to Hawaii, which is also in North America, but going to like, you know, Asia and, and experiencing a night market through the metaverse and actually learning to cook something from that night market. I feel like that to me is a huge application because to your point, which is great, the metaverse is, is about making a link between offline or online and offline. Yeah. Um, maybe like another thing that would be really cool is memory, like the opportunity to go into a restaurant that doesn't exist anymore. It's kind of like a melancholy thought, but mm-hmm. I was thinking about what I was going to say on this podcast. <laughs> if I got stuck and I started thinking about for some reason it popped into my head, um, the restaurant that's described in Jonathan Franzen's book, The Corrections, mm-hmm. and how badly I want to eat there. So, you know, maybe it's the opportunity to eat in restaurants that have only been described in books or only exist in films and, you know, have some experience of it. Uh, You know, I guess doesn't include the food unless you're bringing that yourself. BYOB to the metaverse. It's interesting to also just think about cookbooks because when you talk about a connection to a brand or an author, the way that cookbooks are maybe articulated in the metaverse it seems like it could be a cool opportunity in the future for what we do here at Penguin Random House to explore, like, a metaverse version. What would you – what would – I don't know what the object would be called. Um, um, yeah, I don't use a lot of cookbooks, to be honest. Yeah. But um, it's definitely an object that resonates with me because I have a very clear picture in my mind of my mom's um, really thick, like, red Betty Crocker cookbook. Yeah. And she has this, like, leather – paperweight that she holds it open with um so obviously that object is very meaningful to me even though it sort of exists as like an er object and not (laughs) something that i've ever actually used but you're right uh cookbooks are very emotional and like there's nothing that says just because we have tiktok now or youtube cooking shows that we have to lose the way people felt towards julia child Mm -hmm. um But I would agree that we have lost some of it. And I think that that's the influence of very flattened media distribution. I think that's the influence of creating for the algorithm and not creating for the human. Um, But like I said before, we have control over things and not everything is perpetual growth. Uh, We can go back. We can revisit things that were meaningful through new technologies. Um, at least I, I kind of have to believe that uh, or I think it's easy to fall into, I mean, not just political, but cultural doomerism. Yeah, it feels like doomsday if you're if you're not like thinking optimistically like that. Yeah. Um, about this new frontier that we are all. Very... Right. Like we're all going to drink Soylent and yeah. sit in the metaverse with our, yeah. um, you know, five like replicant husbands. <laughs> I mean, it will happen in some in some world. It's already happening. Um for some people. But whether it'll be the dominant cultural experience, I think 
is an open question. Have you experienced post-food, post-cooking in, in your research, in your world, in, in your reporting? Post-cooking. Well, eh, I don't know. I mean, I think post-anything is interesting. I wrote sure. a piece about being post-lifestyle like five years ago. Hmm. Um, and what, what it was really about was like we're beyond this belief that um, social media can offer like genuine aspiration to the point where you could respond to an image with the sort of feeling of the sublime, the desire to mm. inhabit it. Um, so I think we, like for the reasons I listed out before, um, we've moved out of the authenticity of food photography. Oh, like, absolutely. We've moved, agree. like we're post seeing a food picture on Instagram and feeling that like mm. moment of, um, you know, I could see myself in that image because everything is so commercialized that like, the commercialism just sort of comes down like a sheet and prevents you from inhabiting it. But but I say that, but like when I see posts by my friend Alicia Kennedy, like mm-hmm. I get excited. I feel like I could yeah. maybe be in her kitchen. And I think it's because I know her to be an authentic person, an authentic voice. Mm-hmm. Um, Post food, I don't know. I mean, people have the human need for sustenance. Yeah. Some people have prioritized eating as an experience in an art form. Other people have prioritized it as fuel. And like my big picture political desire would be for everyone to have the resources to have the leisure to pursue food as an activity if they want to. I think that a lot of times when we talk about Soylent and food as fuel, it's often in, I hate using the term late capitalism. I've sort of banned it from the newsletter recently, but like, um, it's in the context of somebody who's in a very late capitalist environment mm-hmm. where the fuel is to work harder or produce more. Yeah. Um, so I think like leisurely food, if you enjoy it, if you're somebody that enjoys it, um, not everyone does, yeah. um, can be a little bit of a rebellion against that. All right. So we have to talk about post-podcast because I, – I, and I, we joke. This was not even on my list of uh, of topics because we don't talk about meta topics like podcasting, but I'm like opening my my dirty mail. I'm always hitting that open. I'm reading Death of the Podcast in the subject line. It's a story by Terry Wynn that appeared in Dirt Today. I'm excited to talk to the founder of Dirt who thinks podcasts are dying. Mm. Well, I would say given our experience today, the death of the podcast is greatly exaggerated. <laughs> um the headline is a little bit of a clickbait, but... I'm glad you admit that. It's a good, well, good headline. Good but headline. Terry also established really early on that she's talking about death in a very Freudian sense, which is I agree. a transformation. Podcasts are in a period of transformation, and what's being transformed is not the ability to continue and create and distribute a podcast as it's been distributed, but it's a shifting site of cultural capital, I guess, where... Um, you know, she brings up the fact that like podcasts did not replace radio. Radio still exists. It's the dominant audio form in a lot of parts of the world and a lot of parts of America. Podcasts did create a certain typology for a This American Life mm. listener who became the stand in for a certain type of hipster, I guess, mm. consumer. And that stand in um, was a stand in that I think a lot of brands found to be useful and and probably cultural critics found to be useful for a really long time. And now 
the prototypical podcast listener is probably listening to podcasts in a lot more of an informal and ambient way. And this goes back to the authenticity thing, which is like, okay, um, you know, it's like this American life is now chef's table, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the podcast that you listen to that's just two friends riffing. Is mukbang. Great call. And I agree with Terry Foley. I think it was a great piece. I'll link to the show notes. It's definitely not death of podcasts. It's death of the dumb money era of podcasts and the highly produced podcasts and giving, you know, uh, thousands to millions of dollars to make these very short series of podcasts. I think there's definitely an exhaustion there. And what we're seeing in the industry, and I think if you've made it this far in the show, you're definitely down with what we're doing here, which is talking to people about a variety of topics in an authentic way in a chat format. And we're not that produced, though, Clayton, shout to our editor, he makes it sound great. But we try to make it feel real. And I think to me, that's what I like in podcasts. So I thought Terry's points were great, actually. I thought that it was a clickbait headline. Yeah, well, made you click. It made me click. I'll have to check the open rate on that. It's probably up in the 50s. You're, you're, you're crushing it, Daisy. Let me close by asking you this. If you could have a restaurant name a menu item after you, what would that menu item be and what style of restaurant would it be at? Oh, okay. Um, I think, you know how they have like the celebrity McDonald's meals now where it's like the whole package of things? So like Travis Scott, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think it would be like, not one item, but like maybe the progression of the meal. I think it would be starting with a Campari soda and then, yeah, some sort of starter, maybe like a, a Caesar salad, small Caesar salad. Yeah. And then going into a squid ink pasta with like a spicy sausage adjacent sauce. Yeah, yeah. And then finishing with an espresso. Love that. Yeah. That's like pretty close to my perfect meal, but it's only my perfect meal if I'm having it with like the right companion. I love that. You know what I mean? Sentiment. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. How sweet. Is there a name for it? Uh, Yeah. The Daisy. The Daisy. Great. Daisy Alioto, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 